But today we're going to be doing half of Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. The psalm is a messianic psalm telling the anguish that Jesus succumbed to. As David expresses the suffering of Christ, the son of David, dying at the hands of wicked men. Therefore, we can glean much Christology from this Old Testament chapter. The natural division of the psalm is in two distinct parts. Verses 1 through 21 is an individual lament, which leads up to a prayer of thanksgiving, and verses 22 to 31. On this Lord's Day, we'll be doing the individual lament, which is verses 1 through 21. To be more specific, the structural divisions for this sermon today are as follows. Verses 1 through 5 is God's abandonment, rule, and the praise of Israel. Verses 6 through 8 is a public spectacle. Verses 9 through 11 is God's covenantal responsibilities. And verses 12 through 21 is abandonment and prayer for covenantal favor. So let us take ourselves and go to that scene, if you will, go back to this prolific, prophetic, holy ground called Golgotha, beginning with verses 1 through 5. This is the words of Jesus Christ. Through the lips of David, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Verse 1. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. This prayer begins with a repetitive cry to my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the Hebrew, this Hebrew, uh, this cry is Eli, Eli, Shabbatsani. This Eli better describes God as not just God, but he is the almighty God. He is the almighty God that is almighty with great power in glory. You see, there's a right way, as we all know, as this church, I guarantee everybody here understands that there's a right way to call on God's name, and there's a wrong way. I remember visiting my grandmother years ago, my dad's mom, in her deathbed, in her last days of life, visiting her. And she too cried out to God. But it was not a reverential cry to Eli, Eli, to Almighty God. Sadly and horrifically, she cursed and sinfully cursed God out as she asked God, why? Why her? I remember correcting, I was a brand new Christian. I remember correcting my grandmother of all people, saying, Grandma, you just sinned against God. That is so wrong. And she never apologized, to the best of my knowledge. She never repented, though she believed. Only the Lord knows where she is today. And the third commandment is in Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So let us ask ourselves, church, if you, if I, if we were in pain, in agony, in our deathbed, 
If we are fortunate enough to have a deathbed, if God gives us one, how would you cry out to God? How would you call upon the Lord? Would it be like Jesus did in a reverential, respectful, awesome way? Or would it be in a sinister way as my grandma did when she cried out to her God? In this psalm, this my God, when Jesus said, my God is equivalent to my father. Oh, Father, help me. Jesus was crying. Christ felt as if God had forsaken him, because God did forsake him. Many preachers will say that God did not forsake his son, but he did. He was forsaken. The entire curse of God and anger of God and wrath and fury of God was put upon his son, Jesus. Christ felt as if God had forsaken him or deserted him, leaving him behind. And then after crying out, Well, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verse 2, Jesus said, Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Oftentimes in the Internet, you will see people type out the words, Oh, my God, or OMG. It's very popular. Even professing Christians will do it. But this is an inappropriate use of God's name. Though we cannot always know their intent or their motive of why they would say something on the internet such as that, but at times it is a violation of the second commandment, also known as blasphemy. But this God, because Jesus cannot sin, I can sin and my grandma can sin, but Jesus cannot sin. His cry, oh my God, is the Hebrew Elohim, which means that his content or intent was addressing God in a reverential, respectful manner. Eli, Eli, lama shabbatsthami. Oh my God, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried to God in the daytime and at the nighttime, which means he continually cried out to the Father, the scripture says. He continually cried out to the Father. But he felt as if the Father had not responded. He felt abandoned by his Father. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Perhaps we've all felt that way. Perhaps we've all felt that God was not there when we called upon his name for help. But for us to think God is not there is a form of faithlessness. Faithlessness is a form of sin. Jesus thought he was not there or felt he was not there or perhaps felt that he was being betrayed, but Jesus cannot sin again. With this verse, as a standalone verse, we could have misunderstood Jesus' cry, Oh my God, in verse 2. If we were to look just at those three words, we could we can say, Wow, why would Jesus say that? But again, Jesus cannot sin. But in the next verse, we can see his intent and the context of his cry, Oh my God, as it reflects on who God is and that God is holy in his kingship and his lordship. Verse 3 says, But thou art holy. So he just said, oh my God, but thou art holy. Oh thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. In a sense, the Savior explained his forsakenness in these words. But you are holy who inhabitest the praises of Israel. Because God is just, he is righteous, and he is holy, holy, holy. 
Because that is the God that we serve. Because that is the God that the Father put his Son on the cross. He demands justice. And his justice, we were freed from that punishment as Jesus bore it on that cross. Chapter 32, paragraph 2 of our confession says, The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient for then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. End of quote. The justice of God demands that, that sin be paid. The wages of sin must be paid for. As it says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a sign that I used to have, a banner, it said, Repent before it's payday. God's love provided what his holiness demanded. He sent his son to die as a substitutionary penal sacrifice on behalf of his people. Christ was penalized, and we got to escape that penalty. Christ paid our sin debt. So it's no doubt that Christ would scream and cry, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, oh my God, why have you forsaken me as his wrath? that the entire church should have endured and that the entire non-saved world will endure. Well, the correct, let me stand corrected on the second part. I almost sounded like he atoned for the sins of the lost world. He did not. But for the, all of the sins of the entire church that Christ endured on that cross, he bore and he felt that punishment. That he, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, was being penalized for something that I did and something that you did. That's another reason why he felt forsaken by God. Next, Jesus said in verses 4 through 5, Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. In verses 4 through 5, a threefold statement of trust in the Lord is used, specifically trusting in him as my God. The Savior is still speaking to his father, reminding him that the patriarchs were never forsaken, that their cries did not go unanswered. In verse 5b, he said, those whom trust in God will not be confounded, nor will they be ashamed. If we truly trust in God, with a salvific, biblical, faithful trust in God, we will not be ashamed. If we don't trust in God, then shame on us. As Jesus said in Luke 9.26, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, and his fathers, and of the holy angels. That's a great passage I share with people out in the world that are ashamed of the gospel. 
If you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, according to Jesus in Luke 9.26, and he said that twice in the gospel, it was recorded twice in the gospel, I will be ashamed of you upon my second coming and the holy angels. Next in verses 6 through 8 is a public spectacle. Jesus says in verse 6 through 8, but I am a worm. Think about that. This is Christ, God Almighty, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, describing himself. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You see, in verse 6, Jesus said, I am a worm, and no man. I was joking around with Jeff, because Jeff cut down his own Christmas tree. And I said, you're a better man than I am. I need to man up, because I've never cut down my own Christmas tree. And real men cut down their own Christmas tree, and from their own yard, y'all mountain folks. But I could never be the man that Jesus was. He said, I am a worm. I am no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Not only was Christ forsaken by God, by the Father, the Son by the Father, but he was despised and rejected by the people, by many men then, and as we all know, many men today. To them, Christ was hardly even a man, but reduced to just a worm. One scholar said this, He knew the bitterness of scorn and rejection by the very people he had come to save. Even as Christ hung on the cross, the watching throne ridiculed and mocked the eternal lover of souls. Incredible as it seems, they sang a taunt song in which they mocked his apparent helplessness and the seeming futility of his trust in God. Close quote. Next, in verses 7 through 8. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Out of a sheer disregard for Jesus' feelings, his opposition acted all high and mighty, self-righteous, as they shake their heads to signify their disgust while mocking him. The shaking of the heads is something that we've all done. We've all shaken our heads at somebody like this. And when somebody shakes their head at us, it's a terrible feeling. When they shake their head in disgust, sometimes we've done it to our children. When they disappointed us, sometimes our children have done it to us when we disappointed them. But the shaking of my head is so common, it's even common then and common today that it's even, they even have a shaking my head emoticon or a shaking my head emoji on social media. And Psalm 109.25 says, I became also a, a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Lamentation 2.15, all that pass by clap their hands at thee, they hiss and they wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole world? Matthew 27.39, And they that pass by reviled him, wagging their heads. 
When our dogs wag their tails, that's a good sign. But when the world wags their heads, that's a bad sign. Verse 8. It looks more like a, verse 8 looks more like a, ha ha, he trusted in his God. Ha ha, he trusted in his Father. But his God was not there for him. His Father forsook him. I'm sure that's what the tone was more like. As one theologian said, the unpious mock him with their argument against his kind of piety. They question his suffering in the light of their myopic view of God's love and in the promises of God's deliverance. If he had trusted the Lord, why then is he suffering? They conclude that either he had boasted of trusting in God but was hypocritical or that God does not love him. Church, the devil whispers into our ears, God does not love you. The devil and his demons will whisper in our ears that God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit does not love us. Never believe that lie. Satan is the father of all lies that's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But church, never forget this. God's love never fails. God cannot fail. God cannot sin. He didn't fail Jesus, and he won't fail us. It is us that fell him. And by the way, for the record, though Jesus was truly God, he was truly man, truly divine, but truly a natural man as well, even Jesus did not forsake the Father as a man because he cannot sin. Matter of fact, it says in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. One day the ha-ha God mockers will be on God's mocker list. As it says in Galatians, as it threatens in Galatians 6, as it warns in Galatians 6, as it promises in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. Paul says this many times in his word because people are deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let not us grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Church, do good and don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to all, especially to our brothers and sisters right here in this church, as well as Christians universally. Next, in verses 9 through 11, is God's covenantal responsibilities. Uh, one thing that I've always struggled with is where do you stop a sermon? Do you split this 21 verses into four sermons, three or two? And I just decided to, uh, to preach it all in one sermon. Now I'm kind of regretting it because maybe, maybe we should have spent more time laboring in each verse. But I also know that as a person sitting in the pews, that my attention span is just not as good as some people. So I also keep that in mind as well. <laughs> Verses 9 through 11, God's covenantal responsibilities. 
Now Jesus gets his mind off of himself and upon the Father. Back in verse 6, he had said, but I. And now in verse 9, he begins with, but thou, but God. Verses 9 through 11. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is no one to help. Can you imagine Christ crying this out to the, to the Father? We have to get our minds off of our horizontal circumstances and fix them vertically upon our Lord. Remember the account between Peter and Jesus while out to sea? I love these maritime stories, but what happened to Peter? What happened to Peter the minute he took his eyes off of Jesus? Well, it's recorded right here in Matthew 14. Now in the fourth watch on the night Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out out of fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, Come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. We all know professing Christians that demonstrate so little faith. I too am guilty at times in my Christian walk of demonstrating so little faith. But it is said. Especially in these days. Apparently the less faithful have their eyes and minds fixed more on this virus than they do our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be infatuated. Infatuated with God. An infatuation and fear of God. That nothing else can cause us to fear more than having a fear for God. And a fear of Christ. And a reverence for His Word. And an addiction to His Holy Spirit. In other words, if we take our minds off Jesus, just like Peter... We can no longer walk by faith. Christians, we all know Christians out there that aren't walking by faith in the year 2020. It's a pity party. Woe is me, 2020. But they've got their minds off of Jesus. And they cannot walk on water metaphorically like that. So let us gaze our eyes upon Christ. Let us behold his glory. In the next three verses, Christ turns away from man to God while remembering Bethlehem. We've gone to the crime scene, if you will, of Golgotha, a place of holy ground where crimes against Jesus occurred. And now we're going to go to Bethlehem. From the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave. As one author said, it was God who had brought him, God who brought Jesus forth from the virgin's womb. It was God who preserved him during the fragile days of his infancy. It was God who had sustained him in his boyhood and young manhood. 
On the basis of this past relationship of love, Christ now appeals to God to draw near in this hour of his crushing solitary trial. End of quote. Verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. The Father does not to be reminded of this, but Jesus is communicating to his Father, just like we do when we pray. But thou, Jesus said to the Father, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. Again, from the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave, from birth, Christ was the Son of God. From birth, Christ had been a divine part of the Godhead, always was and always will be. But in human nature, in his human attributes, he compares God's providential acts of giving life to his own mother's care. Verse 10. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Christ's human nature, his human relation to his father goes way back to being in the womb. From the womb to her breasts to the cross. As it's recorded in Luke 1. Now now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah. And entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out of a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is he who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Yes, providential. Last sermon, there was a lot of, I think it was in the catechism, a lot of verses applicable to this Christmas season. And there's another beautiful passage for Christmas season, remembering us, reminding us of the reason for the season. Verse 11. Be not far from me. Jesus is saying, Father, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. The Father knew trouble was near. His death was coming. Death was knocking at his door. He was with his father since birth, and the father sustained him ever since his birth. Next, in verses 12 through 21, is abandonment and prayer for covenantal favor. Jesus describes more of the turmoil that he's going through. Listen to this. Verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Bashan was a prosperous land, but because of their prosperity, they were very prideful and arrogant. Similar to America, because of our prosperity, we can become prideful and arrogant. It's been said that America is just like Laodicea, which is lukewarm, because of our prosperity. And their bowls in Bashan were very strong and very many, and they were going against the Lord Jesus. Verse 13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. In the next two verses, Christ expresses his human nature even more. Verses 14 through 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. You're hanging from the cross. 
your bones are going to come out of their sockets. Isn't it? I mean, you know, when a baby is small, we have to be careful not to lift their arms too much. You can pull their arms out of their sockets. And if we live, if God allows us to live long enough, the same can happen when we're elderly. It's easy to dislocate a shoulder. And here Jesus, he was being dislocated. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. The metaphors of water and wax are used here, and they're expressive of the feeling of formlessness. Jesus had a feeling of formlessness, as if there was no form, as if he was, again, like a worm, meant about to nothing. Perhaps he feels less human as his bones, heart, strength, and tongue fell him. I could not imagine. Remember how thirsty he was. His tongue was begging for water. It was so dehydrated, so cracked, and so dry in his mouth. One scholar sounded like a forensic pathologist uh, as he described Christ's graphic uh, graphic use of words. Listen to this. Christ's physical sufferings were excruciating beyond description. There was his exhaustion. He was poured out like water. There was the agony of bone dislocation by hanging on the cross. All his bones were out of joint. There was violent disorder of his eternal organs. His heart, for instance, was melted like wax within his breast. There was his endurable weakness, unendurable weakness. His strength was dried up like a fragment of pottery. There was his unremitting thirst. His tongue was clinging to his jaws. It could only mean that God was laying him in the dust of death. That the Father would be laying Christ into the dust of death as a propitiation so that our sins can be redeemed by him through this effectual killing and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is all related to being alienated and hated by men. His strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is like a clay pot. In its human nature, in Christ's human nature, Christ felt like a broken pot, like a broken vessel. But my dear friends, church, we serve a God that's the master potter. We serve a God that puts these broken vessels together. Every one of us have been a broken vessel. And he put us together in a salvific way. And every one of us will be broken again somehow. And he will put us together again if we put our trust and faith in him. Though we're only saved once, but the process of sanctification is a growing process that never stops, Lord willing, until our day of death. It says in Jeremiah 18, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the will, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not go with you as this potter? Says the Lord, look as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The potter 
turns the vessel into a, the broken vessel into another vessel. That's what Jesus did with us, the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit did with us upon salvation. And again, when our heart's broken, when we're having a bad day, or a bad week, or a bad year, maybe even a bad marriage for a day or two, even the best of marriages can have a bad day and a bad marriage, at least for a day. But God can put the marriage back together like a broken vessel, and he can put ourselves together and repair all of us. Another gets turned into a new vessel. Verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Most scholars believe these dogs here are Christ's executioners. Nonetheless, the dogs at these times were not like our dogs today. Our friendly little tail-wagging dogs that love us very much, that welcome us home, that we also call man's best friend. These dogs that lived then were vicious, disease-carrying attack dogs. They were wicked. They were evil. But I agree with the scholars here that he's actually referring to the executioner. As you've heard, I've heard girls say, oh, men are dogs. Girls that had bad experiences with men. Men are dogs, they'll say. Well, these men right here were just like dogs. His executioners, like ravenous dogs, enclosed on the Lord Jesus. Enclosing on the Lord Jesus Christ all of these dogs. Verse 17. Again, Jesus to the Father. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. Jesus' body was probably like skin and bones. And those evil men were making a spectacle of him because of his appearance. A spectacle. Because he did not look like the royal priest that would be driving a limousine of the time in a parade in public. He was in bad shape. Verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They sold Jesus' clothing, not because they needed the money or they wanted to make money. They did it as a mockery to further ridicule the Lord Jesus. But this was also a fulfillment of prophecy. It had to be done, as it's recorded in Matthew 27. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which has spoken by the prophet. Again, prophesied by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Imagine how exciting that would be if we can go back in time knowing the scriptures today and actually see this played before our eyes and say they're, they're going to throw his clothing out there and they're going to sell it. They're going to divide his garments. You watch. And all of a sudden, that's exactly what they do because we know the scriptures. So many fulfillments, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fulfillments of prophecy in the scriptures have been fulfilled. But after all of this turmoil, all of this turmoil that Jesus went through and what he's feeling, but God, verse 19 through 21. Thou, God, are not far from me. O Lord, O my strength. He was his strength. Haste thee to help me, but thou not far from me. O Lord, you are my strength, he's saying. Haste thee to help me, verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword. 
His body would be punished. His body would die. But deliver my soul from the sword, just as he will deliver every one of our souls from the sword, because he paid our penalty on that cross. My darling from the power of the dog, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of unicorns. Church, we too serve the same God, the same Father. And we've been saved by the same Jesus. This is what this is all about. Our salvation of what he did instead. Instead of our place being on that cross and being punished for our sins, Christ bore it all. The penal substitutionary atonement. He was penalized. The perfect one for us sinners. So be encouraged with these thoughts that we can glean from this lesson, from this chapter. In closing, be encouraged with these thoughts. But God, you are not far. But God, you are our strength. But God, you are our hope. You are our deliverer. You are our sword. You are our offense. You are our defense. You are our darling from the power of the dogs. You are our potter. You are the one that will save us from the lion's mouth. You have heard us call from the horns of the unicorns. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that saves. But don't just believe in this church. We've got to apply this by faith. We must demonstrate this chapter in our lives. It does no good if we just believe in it. Explanation and application. Apply this text to our lives and demonstrate it by faith. And trust in the Lord. Ask him to help you not flinch in the face of adversity. Ask him to increase our faith. Ask him to enable you to have more courage from him and more confidence In him, Holy Spirit willing. Father, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful passage. We're so grateful that what Christ did in our place. I could not imagine being the only perfect, sinless man, being temporarily forsaken by God the Father, nailed to that cross, Crying out, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, on our behalf. Crying to you, oh my God, why? But Lord, we thank you for this beautiful prophecy that's been fulfilled. We thank you for the history. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit secured these words, that we can still revisit them, that we can still go to the hill of Golgotha, the sacred holy ground, And re-examine what Christ did for us. Lord, help us and strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.